Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. How do we clear away the wreckage of the past? In today's episode, Nate takes us through the amends process in steps eight and nine. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Welcome to what suddenly turns out to be the last session in Walking Lessons, at least for uh, this iteration. We are this week going to cover steps eight and nine, sometimes called the nuts and bolts step. The steps that terrified me the most when I got into recovery. Uh, I'd heard about these steps. The very thought of facing my past and making amends to people I had harmed so terrified me that I didn't even want to get started on the steps. And, and then uh, I had this moment of insanity where uh, I was ready just to, pl- just to get it over with. And I had to be restrained by a sponsor who said, it's a, there is a reason that these are steps eight and nine and not steps two and three. You are not in any shape or frame of mind. You have not the ability to make amends to other people. You don't even see what you owe. <laughs> and you don't have a right view of yourself. So we have a lot of work to do in self-examination and confession and forgiveness. There's a lot of change and healing that has to take place before you're ready to go make amends. We actually spent a long time, I think I've told you this before, on step seven, humbly ask God to uh, remove our shortcomings. Now, uh, asking God to remove our shortcomings, you know, we can do that fairly quickly. It's the humbling, the humbly part that's the sticking point. And uh, I remember my sponsor telling me early on that I had to learn humility before I was going to be able to go to steps eight and nine. So he assigned me to read chapter seven. I think I've told you this, chapter seven in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. that starts on page 70 and runs to page 77, and it's all about humility. Because I had perfected false modesty, and I had a ton of self-hatred and a lot of self-justification what I didn't have, and what I still struggle to hold on to is humility. But until we get at least a measure of humility, we're not ready uh, to face the past and those we've harmed. Here is the wording for steps eight and nine. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That's step eight. I'll read it again. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I'll read it one more time. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others made a list of all persons we had harmed. Uh, Jesus uh, gave this directive at one point. It's recorded for us in Matthew 5. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We moved here from South Florida just months before I entered recovery. And I didn't go back to Florida for quite a few years. 
It was easy to stay away from Florida because there were lots of people in Florida I didn't want to see. <laughs> in my active addictive mind, um, I really believed that I had been persecuted and victimized by a certain group of people. I had absolutely no awareness that I had violated their boundaries, disappointed them, that I had, in the words of the big book, stepped on their toes and they'd retaliated. All I felt was the retaliation. And I knew that there were some people, not a lot of people, but some people who just didn't like me. And I, and I didn't want to see them again. And then there were others who I knew, I knew I had harmed. Uh, a couple of business partners uh, that I had not been up front with. I'd been an active addict. I hadn't brought my full weight to the company. They had carried more than they should have. I had lied about where I was and what I was doing. I had spent money recklessly. I really had kind of half-assed the whole thing. Now that partnership had not survived my leaving. Uh, those two guys didn't get along all that well together. They both kind of got along with me and once I was gone they decided that they'd split up. So they weren't talking to each other. Uh, when we really hit rock bottom here, we're totally out of money, I offered my services to both of my former partners as a writer. One asked me to work for him and so I went to work for him writing. Uh, but still, I didn't have to see him. <laughs> yeah, he was in Florida, I was in Tennessee. I had a lot of guilt, legitimate guilt, about uh, my, my role in our former relationship. And I didn't know how to face it, I didn't know how to handle it. Steps eight and nine are all about clearing away the wreckage of the past. Now, we continue to make messes. We always will. And that's what the subsequent steps, which we're not going to get to, unfortunately, will deal with. Uh, I, I, making amends is a, uh, you know, recognizing our wrongs, admitting them quickly, making amends wherever possible needs to become a habit, a rhythm. But on any given day, you know, uh, there's this big pile. And I'm either removing <laughs> some of the weight from that pile or I'm adding to it. And uh, that whole mountain of wrongs just uh, weighed me down and hung over me. And so all I did was avoid it. So when we got to step eight, it was time to make a list. It sometimes helps, and I, I have heard this advice, not from my sponsor, but from other sponsors, uh, to kind of start by making a list of the people who've harmed you. Uh, it's about, after all, broken, fractured relationships. And uh, I, I could make that list pretty fast. Uh, I had an extensive list of people who had harmed me. Now, strangely enough, there are only a couple of people on that list who I had not irritated or provoked in some way. Now, there are those people. Uh, let's not be naive. I have not met very many wicked people in my life, but I have met a couple. I have crossed paths with um, at least one person who I truly believe, I mean, he's injured. So I have been blindsided and victimized, and perhaps you have too. And it is not our responsibility to restore a relationship with somebody who's going to injure us. 
at least not the kind of relationship they would like to have. However, in order to live freely, we must come to a place of forgiveness. If I can forgive what he's done without forgetting what he is, if I can give up my legitimate right to revenge and allow God to deal with that, then I don't have to carry around, as I did for years, um, this enormous load of resentment. Very little of my resentment was legitimate, but some of it, some of it was and is. But what I found as I made my, my list of people that I had harmed was that I think I inflicted the most harm on the people who were closest to me. Allie topped the list. My wife topped the list. I remember her saying early in recovery as she's kind of dealing with the enormity of my betrayal and its implications. I remember her saying, you know, the worst thing about it isn't that you were unfaithful to me physically, sexually. She said the worst part is just the patronizing way you've treated me all these years. And the truth is I had abandoned Allie uh, early on. Uh, as soon as I became active in my addiction, I, I was still there physically, but I abandoned her emotionally, which is sometimes, I think, even crueler if you're there but you're not there. And I had also developed a very condescending attitude toward my wife. I didn't respect her intelligence. I was just so arrogant. And here's the thing, because I am the biggest mirror in my wife's life, she began to doubt. I became indifferent, by the way. Indifferent also, I, I, I think I've told you this, uh, blind to her beauty, you know, blinded by pornography, frankly. And because uh, I wasn't reacting to her beauty or acknowledging her intelligence and gifts, she began to doubt herself. And she began to retreat. Uh, she lost confidence. And she became very, very lonely. But in the middle of that loneliness, still so courageous in continuing to speak well of me, in caring for our kids, making up for my emotional absence as best she could. I remember her saying early on, you have no idea what you did. I remember one time when she was in a lot of pain, she said, I wish that for just a minute you could feel what I feel. And, uh, you know, I had numbed myself out for so long that I didn't have much empathy at all. And it takes time for that to regenerate. <laughs> it's another reason why uh, amends are this far down the list, this far along in the process. Uh, with, there has to be some healing till we can get to the point where we can actually sit in somebody else's seat for a while and see the world through their eyes and feel their pain. I'm not convinced that I have yet felt all of my wife's pain. I picked up a couple of books at the sex addiction therapist conference that I spoke at a few weeks ago. There were quite a few ministries there. Now I'm, I'm heartened to see that there are an increasing number of ministries for the spouses of the sexually addicted. And so I got to meet some of these fine people, these women. And uh, I picked up a, a book that I'm frankly still struggling to get through. It's hard to read. 
uh, because it um, tears away the gauze. I want, there's a part of me that wants to convince myself that it really wasn't that bad. But it was. Now, my, uh, my sponsors, as I think I've told you, told me early on, don't blindside your wife with a detailed confession she hasn't asked for. Don't buy your own peace of mind at the expense of hers. And so it would be a few years before Allie, uh, you know, at her own instigation, by request, learned all that I had done. Not every ugly detail. She's wise enough not to ask for every ugly detail, but all the categories. Uh, in the meantime, they said, from day one, they said, it's time for you to begin making a living amends to your wife. I love that phrase, a living amends. And so amends to my wife meant, for me, staying home when she wanted me to stay home and leaving when she wanted me to leave. It's, it's, uh, it's odd. Early in recovery, I was, I was staying, <laughs> staying home quite a bit, and she was in such pain that at one point she asked, can't you find a place to go and work? Can you please? And so you know, that was the impetus to get me out of the house and into an office and into Starbucks and into town was to give my wife some breathing room. I'm happy now, you know, 17 years in, that Allie really hates it when I go out to work. She would really prefer me to stay home. That's because there's been some healing. It meant, for me, uh, amends meant trying to stay as emotionally present as I can, listen as empathetically as I can. It meant working to recover my sight, to recognize again the extraordinary beauty that God has given to my wife. She's a beautiful woman. She's always been beautiful. And it, it astonishes me that for so long I didn't see it. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, for me, to see my wife now take more pride in her appearance. And she likes to dress well and spend some time on her hair. And, and she has a confidence these days that for a lot of years she lacked just because I was not giving her the affirmation she needed and deserved. I was very, very grateful. I think we really turned the corner, Allie and me, on amends two years ago, 15 years in, when on our 35th wedding anniversary, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. I, I was just so grateful that she didn't have to confront that cancer as a single person. Um, I was able to be there. I was able to be there emotionally. I was able to be there physically. I was able to give her primary care. I was able to to stay. And uh, we grew so much tighter through that ordeal. Sometimes I'm criticized by, I get some sideways criticism. People think I occasionally indulge my wife too much. I don't think I can indulge her uh, too much. I really don't. For me, this is immense. Uh, I also had uh, amends to make to my kids. This was different because they were not aware of how much I had injured them. We all grow up in a, in a family that defines normal for us. and We kind of adjust to what is, right? And uh, I would never abused my kids. 
And I always had a great public reputation. They were convinced they, their dad was the greatest guy in the world. My kids thought I was 10 feet tall. They had no idea. And I'd, I'd drawn them into this sick game of ridiculing their mother. She'd felt very alone for a long time. So part of my amends, by the time I got in recovery, now this changes for people, and I get this question all the time when I speak, when it comes to Q&A. How did you tell your kids? How do I tell my kids? This kind of disclosure thing. And my experience isn't applicable in every case because my kids were all grown by the time I got in recovery. The youngest was 18. But still, I owed them amends. I was not all that they deserved in a dad. I was emotionally absent a lot of the time. They didn't get the nurture from me or the direction or the care. Uh, I could be good time dad, make up for my neglect by whirling them away for a weekend at Disney World. I got to the point where my kids, when we were living in Florida, it's like, no, not Disney World again. They would beg to stay home after a while. Uh, I tried to make up for my lack that way. They deserved a lot more, and they deserved to know the truth. I was terrified to tell them the truth. I didn't want to lose their respect. I didn't want to lose their admiration, uh, their love. I was afraid they'd hate me. But when it came time, I did. Uh, with the advice of my sponsor, made those amends to each one individually, privately, told them the truth about what I'd done during their growing up years and where I was now, and telling them the truth about their mother. One of my big apologies was, I feel terrible. I attempted to warp your view of your mother. It was the healthiest thing I think our family has experienced was me making those amends. My kids did not reject me at all. If anything, their admiration for me seems to have grown, and it's a whole lot more realistic now. I also gave them, I think, permission to be more honest and more authentic with me and with other people. And it did a ton to restore their relationship, uh, strengthen their relationship with their mom. And then part of my amends, frankly, is I pay for therapy. You know, I can do what I can do, but these kids also, they need some third-party help. And so part of my amends is they need therapy, I pay for it. And I'm grateful to do it. And then have helped, you know, to do, I, I've done what I can, teach my youngest son a trade so that he can support his family and help my daughter and her three young kids. And it's an ongoing amends process. But then there were all those people in Florida. What was I going to do with those people in Florida? So I remember taking a trip for the express purpose of making amends visiting my former partners separately and telling them uh, what I'd done and apologize. Now, here's the thing about amends. We make amends not to get forgiveness. This is not for us, really. I mean, it's about restoring relationship. It's also about acknowledging our fault. A, a good amends, we don't, uh, we don't ambush somebody with amends. Uh, we don't do it right as they're leaving, leaving the house or dropping off to sleep or we try not to hit them, let them know, look, I, I have something important I'd like to talk with you when you have time, when you have some space, could we talk? And I'd made those appointments 
and talked with those guys. One guy forgave me immediately, said it answered a lot of questions and, and uh, you know, it made a lot of sense. He's never mentioned it again. The other guy, Frank, he said, thank you, appreciate it, please never come back. And I had to leave it there and didn't go back. And uh, about a dozen years passed before he showed up at my door. And we now have a restored relationship. But he needed time not to have me around. And part of my amends was to leave him alone. It also meant uh, apologizing to some of my persecutors. They'd been my enemies, and I'd been really, really good at playing the victim and the martyr. I'd gotten a lot of public sympathy because these people were out to get me. It was during the years I was running a Christian school. And I'll tell you what, these guys had paid a heavy price for opposing me. And I had to go back and acknowledge that uh, there, was, there, there was some truth in their accusations, that they smelled something funny and they were right. I had to apologize for these public denials that made them look so bad. That was uh, not an easy thing to do. But I'm grateful that I don't have to avoid Florida any longer. It's, uh, we've cleared away that wreckage. Here's kind of an odd amends. <laughs> One of the first things I did when I got here trying to make, make a living, it was very early in recovery. I needed to make some money. It was before we, I was writing. And uh, I started a Y2K business. If you're ever tempted to, to implicitly trust my judgment, remember, I once started a Y2K business. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I was a fervent believer and, and ready to cash in and make some money. Well, there was a, a more well-established Y2K business in town with guys who were really, I mean, riding high and, and making lots of money. They had no idea who I was or who we were. Uh, but I, I considered them rivals, and I actually, I didn't like them at all. I, I, I envied their success. I hated them. And at one point, I actually tried to sabotage them with a potential customer. So now, some more time has passed. I'm now at step eight. It's time to make amends. And there's this one guy who I, I mean, I just don't like this guy. I've competed. I, I've played dirty. And it didn't work, by the way. They still succeeded and we still failed. But I ran into him at church. Now, he didn't know who I was, but I knew exactly who he was. And we're coming out of church. And I tapped him on the shoulder and I said his name. And I said, could I, could I possibly talk to you for a minute? And he went, uh, OK. We stepped off to the side. And I introduced myself. And I said, I'm sorry, I, um, I just I, I want to let you know that when you were in business, I was in business, and you were much more successful than I was, and I was envious, I didn't like you, and I actually tried to, uh, to ruin you with a customer. And I'm very sorry. And he looked a little bit confused and befuddled, and you know, kind of mystified, where was this coming from? But he said, uh, oh, okay, well, thanks. And that was that. Okay, so years pass now, and we start the Samson Society, and then I write Samson and the Pirate Monks. 
and it's time to see if we can get it published. And I get a, I get a literary agent, and he submits it in New York and in LA and all, and, and everybody passes on the book for lots of reasons. For one thing, I, there's no guaranteed initial sales. I don't have an audience. There's 50 Samson guys in Franklin, and that's it. It's not like I pastor a church or I got a radio show or a blog or anything like that. Nobody knows who I am. I am a first-time author, and it's kind of a funky book. The secular press doesn't want it because it's too Christian. The Christian press doesn't want it because it's not Christian enough. <laughs> and finally, my literary agent throws up his hands and says, you know, I don't, you know maybe we'll have to self-publish or whatever. Nobody wants the book. And it's then that this guy, who I'd made amends to several years earlier, the former Y2K guy, who's not my agent, who has no skin in the game at all, gets to, you know, stands to gain nothing if this book is published, right? This guy somehow gets a copy of my book proposal. And when he finds himself on an airplane with a friend who's a publisher, hands him the book proposal and says, I think you ought to look this over. And this publisher then, when he gets off the plane, places a call to one of his editors, who, by the way, has already turned the book down. From what I understand, he turned it down at least twice and said, I think we need to publish this book. If I had not made amends, would that have happened? I don't know. And it's not about, we're not making amends for our own benefit. But at least there was a relationship. This guy knew me. He'd had some contact with recovery. And something impelled him to take a little bit of ownership in this project that nobody else wanted. This is all about, these steps are about restoring relationship. As much as lies within you, Paul says, be at peace with all men. As much as lies within us. Here's uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. Isn't that cool? Now, amends sometimes includes restitution. Here's what the law said back in uh, Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen and taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to him, or the lost property he found, or whatever it was he swore falsely about. He must make restitution in full, adding a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day that he presents his guilt offering. And as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of these things he did that made him guilty. Now, it's important. We do not uh, make restitution in order to get forgiveness, God's forgiveness. 
let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, Christ has paid the penalty for all our sin. Everything we've lied about, stolen, embezzled, you know, gotten uh, by any means that are uh, unrighteous. Christ has paid the penalty. But in the service of restoring relationship and credibility, I think it's good and right for us to make restitution wherever we can. That means paying debts we owe, giving back what we've taken. It's a, it's a humbling thing to do it, to admit that we owe it, and then uh, to give it. But humility is actually a marvelous quality that we do well to cultivate. Whenever we voluntarily humble ourselves, there is a big spiritual payoff. So, you know, it's a blow to my pride to have to admit that I owe something to somebody else. And it can be difficult to pay it back. Let's look at the reaction of, of one guy who encountered forgiveness. And it was, he made restitution not to gain forgiveness, but because he had, given, had been given forgiveness. He'd been forgiven. Here we are in... Luke chapter 19, where we meet Zacchaeus, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that what was lost. I, I'm fascinated by Zacchaeus. I wish we knew more of his backstory. What was it like to grow up as the, I mean, I have some sympathy for Zac Zacchaeus because I was always short growing up and I'm still short, but if you think I'm short now, you should have seen me in high school, right? <laughs> so I, I was always this little tiny guy. So here's Zacchaeus, he's freaking short, probably got picked on and he found eventually the perfect revenge, the perfect revenge he could become a tax collector. Work for the Roman authorities, collect taxes from his own people. And he wasn't just a tax collector. It says he was a chief tax collector. There were actually three tax districts in Palestine, Caesarea, Capernaum, and Jericho. Evidently, Zacchaeus had uh, kind of bought the tax collection franchise for his part of the country, he may have controlled tax collection for up to a third of the country. He was, in all likelihood, the most hated man in Jericho. And he was very rich. 
Don't you love that when Jesus came to Jericho, that was the man he picked to go to lunch with? That was the man he picked out of the crowd? The guiltiest guy. And I think Jesus saw his woundedness. He saw past the sin to the sinner. And he knew what mercy would do to this man. He knew mercy would take this man apart. And he showed mercy by saying, hey, I want to go to your house. Nobody went to Zacchaeus' house. You threw rocks at Zacchaeus' house if you could get away with it. Everybody hated him. And Jesus brought mercy. And Zacchaeus' spontaneous response was, all right, I'm going to give up on greed. I'm going to become a philanthropist. I'm going to love people. I, I can do without half of what I have. I'm going to give that to the poor immediately. And then we're going to go back over the books. And wherever I've cheated somebody, I'm not going to pay them back 120%, which is what I'm required to do by law. I'm going to pay them back 400%. I will tell you this. You know, I dreaded amends. Uh, I hung back from amends for a very long time. There's something very joyful about making amends. Something very freeing about making amends. It's humbling, yes, but it, it, it helps us to get right-sized and allows us, at least me, to experience kind of a fresh and a deeper way some more mercy. I'll close with this, this reading from the 12 and 12 at the end of the description of, of step nine. And this is, if you've been to 12-step meeting, you probably heard this because it, it, it gets read at virtually every meeting. This is what he says toward the end, uh, Bill W. says toward the end of his description of step nine. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We'll not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? And in the meetings, everybody says the next line. We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com 
or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.